That is how we're going to get more checkbooks, not not backroom gigs for people who have deep, deep HR experience. This is how we're going to get the checkbook in those hands. And that is my goal. I really desperately think that our world would be a better place if we had more people who had depth of care and operational excellence and experience in building organizations who have had successful business outcomes in our industry. I really desperately think that this is what's needed and we're starting to see it happen. And it makes me so happy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. We're heretics in this industry because there's a culture of silence around important business topics, especially with people. But on the show, we tell the truth and expect the same from our guests. Today, our episode is with Caitlin Holloway. Caitlin is a partner at 776, the VC firm she and Alexis Ohanian run together. Caitlin was the former VP of people at Reddit and worked at Clout and Pixar before that. She's also known to many HR pros because she's the host of a podcast called All Hands from Lattice, which is awesome. Yeah. Caitlin's episode is awesome. Um, candidly, I'm an Alexis Ohanian fanboy. For those of you who don't know, <laughs> he's also married to Serena Williams, uh, who's like the GOAT. I loved hearing about Caitlin's relationship with Alexis and how that's fostered and changed over the last nine years. Yeah, this was a good one. Caitlin's also the goat, in my opinion. Her passion, Nolan, around venture and chief people officers and HR leaders' roles being more prominent in venture was phenomenal. We haven't gone deep on that on the show. And she had, again, incredible passion around it, shared how investing is basically parallel to recruiting those processes yep. and, and her kind of tips and tricks around equity advising for those of you who are interested in kind of fast agreements and how to do that and what that looks like. Yeah. Caitlin's take on talent partners and that she believes more HR professionals should mm -hmm. actually have access to the checkbook versus forced into the back office to help with recruiting, I thought was a really interesting lens. I also loved her takes on, you know, doing something hard builds bonds faster as it relates mm -hmm. to human relationships. Like she's so spot on about mm -hmm. that. And then also how she thinks about leaving companies and leaving companies when you're happy versus sad or frustrated. Yeah, but behind the venture piece and the investing piece, that was probably my favorite part of this this episode is is around leaving companies, which we've all done. I've I've had that fork many times in my career and how to think about it. It's such a great framework. And so yeah. I think our audience is absolutely going to love this episode. But before we jump into the interview with Caitlin, we just want to take a quick moment to shout out an awesome resource for people operators. It's HR Brew, and it probably doesn't need any introduction. But it's a free weekday newsletter that's highly curated, covering the most critical industry knowledge. Yes, it has been indispensable for me for a while now coming into my inbox. They do a great job, Nolan, with just really quick, concise, like sound bites of HR news that you can kind of consume under five, 10 minutes versus we know sometimes the rat hole of LinkedIn and you're there for an hour. So 
the newsletters, they link to resources, strategy guides, you know, debates that you and I love to have on the bleeding edge, like recruiting, retention, hybrid work, comp, HR tech. It's pretty invaluable. I agree. I think it's actually a no-brainer. 155,000 HR pros subscribe to HR Brew. So check out the link in our profile. Please go subscribe to them in addition to what we're doing here. Awesome. Now let's get into it. Here's our conversation with Caitlin, everybody. Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So I, I want to just start quickly with your background. You're currently a partner at 776. You were also the head of people at Reddit from like 70 to more than 700. And then you were also at Clout way back in the day, which actually was like one of the hottest companies and employee number 21 at Clout. How did you initially get into people in HR? Uh, that is a good question. Yeah, I've done a lot in my career. I've been I've been around a minute, um, and and I'm I'm settling into that fact uh, that that's a good thing um, because I, I feel like my entire career I've always felt um, like something was new or that I was the 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 newest kid in the party and had a lot to learn. And I'm I'm recently settling into the fact it's like oh yeah no I've got got a significant amount of experience under my belt um, that I can draw on right and so. From um, so yeah, how did I get into HR? Um, was totally an accident. Um, I a lot of the best folks in in our industry are people who I think will say HR found me. Um, you know, on on my own podcast, All Hands with Lattice, I get every time I ask that question, um, even just in the warm up, it it's almost always HR found me. Um, and I think that part of that is because the world of HR prior to what fifteen years ago was so antiquated and it was so not a destination career. It was not sexy. It was not uh, compelling to want people to go into it necessarily. And there, there are special souls who looked at that and said, yes, that's for me and bless them. Um, but I, I think that most people found it on accident because it was, they were naturally drawn to, or they were in an organization where people were coming to them, people were confiding in them. And so it really was a community role, an internal community role. And and the people who who eventually transferred into the industry, myself included, were the ones who said, "Gosh, I think that there is a pattern here. I think that there's a trend here, or there is a there is a process here that is missing that I can I can see and I can see clear as day." And then you go and you find the internal resources to build that. And then the next thing you know, you wake up in a boardroom meeting and you're like, "Oh, I'm the HR person. How did that happen?" Um, and that's what happened to me. Uh, so. Prior to getting into the world of tech and the world of HR, I was um, at Pixar Animation Studios, where I never held an HR position. Uh, but what I like to say is I was a client and a very happy client of uh, the HR and people function at Pixar. And I really credit that team with teaching me so much about what great HR looks like. Because prior to that experience, I worked in a number of different industries uh, with a lot of different types of cultures. And I was not necessarily a happy customer. So seeing it done really right and really well um, was, was fascinating to me. And so when I eventually left the studio and I did move into tech, it was it was an opportunity to take all of the incredible things that I had learned there as a customer to say, gosh, I love the way they built out their learning and development system. Again, this is before learning and development was something that was in, you know, that we were talking about in other types of organizations. But Pixar was so well suited to be a pioneer in many of these spaces because they were such a creative industry and they really a big part of their their culture and their value set was building outside of the system, right? And so 
I was able to say, you know, looking at the Pixar University model, for example, they didn't call it learning and development. It was the Pixar University. And it's funny because it's called PU. And so you'd be like, oh, I'm going to my PU class. And the beauty of that program was they allowed anybody in the studio, regardless of your role, your title, your tenure, your salary, anything, could attend any course. And there were things, you know, ranging from learning Photoshop, you know, Photoshop 101 to fly fishing. They, they saw that you could develop uh, deep relationships and move the business forward and unpack and, and discover creative ideas that could then be put into the film or put into a part of the process from all different parts of the organization. And so for me, that was not, we need to have a learning and development uh, system. It was, how do we live the value? Great ideas come from anywhere. And so I was like, oh, that's one example of like, you are doing this so right. And I benefited from that, from a growth and development standpoint. I learned so much. Then I was able to create internal opportunities for myself to try things and do things and build relationships with people that I otherwise would have never had that opportunity. And so when I left and I went into the world of tech, I was like, oh, I'm going to pack up my little backpack with some of those great things that I experienced, that little Pixar fairy dust, and I can apply them to young, budding, growing organizations that are just in that nascent, you know, earliest stages and then grow it. And so my, my goal was never to go into HR. My goal was to say, oh, that was such an awesome lived experience. I want other people to experience and I don't care what my title is. And then, so I had the same experience where one day I woke up, you know, three months into my gig at Clout. And I I made up some title like director of creative solutions, but I basically was the only non-engineer, non-product person. I was doing EA work. I was doing office management work. I was doing finance, HR. I was doing all of the things that no one else had, had was able to pick up in the organization at that particular moment. And and I was like, oh my goodness, it's HR. And then I was able to then articulate because I had a great relationship and partner with the founder and CEO Joe Fernandez, to, and he gave me the space to say, if you don't want to be traditional HR what does this look like? And so he gave me the, the, you know, the, the blue sky space to really create the job that I felt was missing while still, you know, maintaining and managing the important parts of compliance, T crossing, I dotting, making sure people were serviced appropriately, but not necessarily having that be the core part of my role. Caitlin, do you think that like, same, right. When we were starting out, you know, and I'm old too now, but no one explicitly chose it. No one said, I want that. Um, do you think that's changed? Absolutely. Yes. And I am so glad that it has. I am so glad that, that finally the work that is done, uh, by this function is being valued. It is being recognized and not just, um, financially, right. The, 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 the compensation now is it, it matches, the importance. Um, and it's, but it's also being seen in the boardroom. The addition of, of the, the person leading this function is now in most boardrooms in, in, at least in tech and, and, you know, early stage companies and now later stage companies. We're seeing it in the public sector now as well. Um, but, but also the joy, right? Sharing the joy of this work and someone saying like, gosh, I was naturally kind of doing this. Maybe I was an office manager and the, this, this work kind of started coming to me and I, I finally feel like I have purpose and value. And so, yes, I think it's changed. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I agree. I, I was one of those who actually chose it 
if you can believe it, but it was kind of by luck. It was like 1998. And one of my professors in college was like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. I like business, but not enough to like take a County. And I like people, but I don't want to like talk to people on couches all day. What? And they said, have you heard of industrial organizational psych? And I was like, you're going to have to say that, say that, say that 10 times fast, you know? Hey everyone. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey everybody. Your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. Visit Lattice.com slash HRHeretics today. That's Lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators, They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than a hundred other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go to market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. So Caitlin, you've been working with Alexis Ahanian now for I think about nine years. Um, Alexis is a legend in Silicon Valley. Um, he's also married to Serena, which makes him a legend kind of now globally. Um, how did you meet Alexis, and how has that relationship evolved over time? Yeah, um, you're right, Alexis. This is our third rodeo now together. Um, so how I met him was he uh, he hired me at Reddit. Um, so during the big turnaround, um, I think that we first met in 2015, um, and it was through a recruiter. It was through a fantastic recruiter who, uh, you know, classic, I wasn't looking for a job, blah, 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 and, and had you know, the, the strategy of the recruiter I thought was fantastic. She kept telling me every time we met, cause I was actually hiring, which is the only reason I was talking with her. And, um, and she would, you know, pick my brain. I, I had this interesting company. I'm having trouble finding the best candidate. It's so unique. And then she would present me with a challenge the company was having. And so in my next weekly sync with her, I, she knew I was stewing on it. I think that I'm in, but she wouldn't tell me the name of the company. And so I'd come back thinking about the challenges this organization was facing. I'd be like, yeah, have they thought about this? Have you, have you, have you introduced someone with this profile? Blah, blah, blah. And then soon enough, I was already in love. She knew I was invested. And so push came to shove. She actually did not tell me the name of the company until I was in an Uber getting out on site. That's because that's how bad of a brand the, the company was at that particular moment. Wow. Yeah, they had had three CEOs in less than a year. They were in the news for all the wrong reasons, um, and they were. The, this was the beginning of the turnaround, and um, and so I was one of the first executive hires that was made by that that team. 
um, including Alexis to, to say, Hey, something that we want to do different in this chapter and something we know that's deeply important is, is finally put a focus on people. And so I was one of the first, um, executive hires to come in for that turnaround period. Um, I think I technically started in 2016 beginning, but I, I'd been talking with them for several, several months. Um, so I, I feel like I've known Alexis for longer than I have, um, because of that process. And then, you know, we were in the trenches together. That turnaround was, was, um, a phenomenal, uh, experience for me, both professionally, um, uh, deep, deep learnings, um, and, and then also building my network and my relationships. And I think that when you are doing something very hard, I think that most of us have had this experience when you are truly doing something that is very, very, very hard. Um, it builds a deeper bond faster. And so having been in the trenches with Alexis, having, you know, we, we, our employees, when I started, refused to wear the company merch on the street. They wouldn't wear the swag uh, because they were they would get bullied or picked on or they were embarrassed to work at that that company at that time. And so to see the transition and, and that's you know that's such a small indicator of, of the health of an organization, but but the amount of change that we were able to create together as that that newly formed leadership team um, was one of the best rides of my career. Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. And so because of that, we became very close. And eventually Alexis left the company again to go back to Initialize Capital, which was the venture capital firm he had started, um, you know, even prior. He had been a partner at YC uh, because he was in the first graduating class there with the rest of those interesting Silicon Valley kind of gang uh, that have all, you know, carved their own names into our our textbooks of that chapter. Um, and so anyway, we, we had stayed in touch. And because we had worked so closely together and he he was aware of my work, my my service level, my quality, and uh, the things that I'd done just by, by witnessing it, um, I became the phone a friend uh, over at Initialize. So I began advising for portfolio companies over there. Um, and I found that work to be absolutely... Uh, joyful because I was, you know, very, very deep at Reddit, working very, very um, hard and closely with the teams um, across the, the the entire company. Um, after the company had been stabilized, which you know, collectively we were able to do fairly quickly, all things considered. And so I was, I was now going very deep with the work, and so bringing on operators and bringing on different people to service different parts of the people and culture function within the organization. Um, and so it was, frankly, really lovely. For me to have that that change in pace, where yeah, I'll take a thirty minute call or, or grab a quick coffee with a founder who is, you know, coming coming to Alexis's door as their investing partner, saying, "Hey, I have to fire someone. I've never done that before." He's like, "Oh, you got to talk to Caitlin," or, "Ooh, we just got a new round of funding and we have to build our sales organization. I don't know how to structure it." Oh, you got to talk to Caitlin to like, "Oh, I got to break up with my co-founder. I don't know how to do that." And Alexis was like talk to Caitlin. And so that was how I, I began to get introduced to like institutional investing um, was simply by having this uh, wonderful, you know, change of pace in my day. And I wasn't doing a lot of it. It was, it was just enough to keep me, you know, like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I can and, empathize. And then, yeah, just enough right? to keep the lights going yeah. and and you want to take the calls. So that's great. But totally. Caitlin, your your acceleration into venture has been just so f- freaking fun to watch. And I know you have such a strong point of view and are making a lot of noise in a great way about 
more of you, more of us, more of people leaders into venture. And I'd love to talk about it. I'm so glad that you were bringing this up because this is absolutely one of my biggest points of passion right now. Um, I, I feel so lucky to have entered the, the workforce within the, the people and culture sphere when I did. It was, it was such an incredible moment and period and time of change. And I, I talk about it as, you know, dragging HR out of the back room into the boardroom chapter of our industry. Um, and to come in that as someone who wasn't, you know, quote unquote, classically trained, I didn't, you know, get my, my master's and, um, what, what was it, Kelly? Organiz- industrial organization. <laughs> industrial I can't organ- say it once. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's awesome because the the community that existed that predated you know HR 2.0 was so open and willing and saying yes 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 let's link arms um, and so there was no us versus them when when this moment of change this 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 need for you know the change catalyst that had to occur to to make that happen not just for our industry for the sake of our own career development but really for the sake of business outcomes right. And, and so beating my fists on the table around business outcomes where this is not nice to have, this is not soft, fluffy, let's make the HR folk feel seen. This was about how do we augment business outcomes? And so what occurred to me, you know, after I feel like we've had this, this major revolution, I, again, I, I'm bad with dates and time, but I would say this, this probably the shift really started to happen about 15 years ago, but, but where we are now is, is now it is just commonplace, which is exactly where you want to get that, that the voice of human resources or people and culture is heard and reverberates throughout the organization. And that, that is inclusive of the boardroom. It is inclusive of the executive room. And so feeling like we had won, I was getting to the end of my, my tenure at Reddit, knowing that, you know, there, there was a potential exit on the horizon and having worked at a public company, having worked at a private company that then went public, I know that that's not my jam. Um, and there are people better suited to lead that, that part of the organization than me. I knew that I, w- I was needing to make a transition and I was looking down the, the path. I was, I was staring at the fork in the road and I thought, okay, I can go and run a playbook that I know and love and work that I'm deeply and desperately passionate about again. Um, finding another Reddit was going to be hard for me. I had such deep love and connection and care for that, that group, um, and for what we had built. And so, you know, there's, there's always the fear of, of leaving something that is wonderful. Um, but I will tell you this in my career, I've always left my companies when I have been the most happy, uh, not when I've been the most sad or frustrated. And that has developed into incredible opportunity for me. And there's, you know, there, there's always some miss and some, some amount of regret, but that's no, that's not true. There's no regret. There is miss. I miss and I yearn for certain times and certain chapters, but the best part about leaving a company is you still going to take the best parts with you, which are the people and the relationships. Right. And so I say that to say, if you are thinking about it or you were concerned, go, <laughs> if it's in your heart, go. It's so funny. I, I agree. Like when I, whenever I've left, it's usually, usually been on that and it, it creates a different dynamic. It's almost like you're still there, right? Like that, that work continues. Those relationships continue. Those people from a company 10 years ago called me last week to help them with something. I mean, it's, it's, that's a very great way of thinking about it. And so it's not really by it's see you later. And let me just keep compounding these great experiences with the next ones versus kind of sitting there to the bitter end. I mean, Seinfeld went out in a high. I still watch it. Totally. 
That's a great analogy. That's a great analogy because it's, it's so easy to get stuck in the trap of maybe this thing has evolved or changed for me and it's not serving me anymore, but I love so much about this part that I, that I'll hang on. And, and so I think it's a, it's about there, there are two things for me that have helped those transitions be successful. One is trying to do my best to be self-aware about my needs and, and where, where my needs are being met. And so in the example of, you know, I was, I was starting to advise for initialized capital and I found myself drifting more towards thinking about those companies and those relationships. So I was like, that's a sign. So when it became more than just a, oh, this is a lovely distraction for a, you know, a half hour a week to, I really want to go deeper with that person, or I, I, I want to take two or three calls this week. So that was an indicator for me that something was shifting in myself. Um, and then the other part was really being able to have a great dialogue with your leader, right? Your with the person that, that you are working and serving within that that organization, and to be able to have those conversations, say like, "I'm having these thoughts and feelings," or you know, "I know that I'm not best suited to take us through IPO." I like I, I can get us to this point very effectively, but like I want to be really honest for again business outcomes. I want the best person leading this. Um, and so those are two things that have helped me identify like when to, to leap from the top of the roller coaster as opposed to fall off at the bottom. <laughs> I can go and I can go in-house and run this again and do the work that I love. And I may find a hitter. I might not. Who knows? Um, and I'm willing to roll that dice if that's the work that I think that I'm supposed to do now. Or I can really lean into this work that I've been doing with Initialized, which it, it had become very clear to me that all of the critical skill sets needed for early stage investing, after the check is written, they are people skills. They are the skill sets that I've been building for 10 years at that point to say, you know, whether it is finding that that deal, right? So that's that's a function of recruiting. It's you you must have a healthy built relationship and network within an area that you are passionate about. And so for me, it was HR technology. So I had started angel investing along the way, which is a, something worth calling out. I was both advising for initialized, but then also nurturing my own personal portfolio because I was deeply passionate about the tools and technology needed for, for me and our industry so that I could spend my time doing the work that I love most, which was the creative strategic empathetic work. And so I needed technology to enable that so that we could scale. Um, and so I, I was like, wow, after you write the check though, so after you identify that founder or that company that you say, this is, this is it again, the parallel between recruiting and that is the same. It is the same skill set, the same mental, even the same spreadsheets for me. It's the work that I knew. And so maybe I, I do it differently, but that's your deal flow, right? So you have your funnel. So just like a candidate funnel, you're bringing people on top, you're keeping relationships alive, who's moving where, you understand the ecosystem. And then you are, you are whittling it down to who is exactly the best person for this job. The difference is, is it was not who's going to be my next head of sales. It was is this person the right person to lead this organization in a CEO role, right? So same, same <laughs> in terms of skill set. And then after the check is written, which a lot of people are you, myself included, um, that first chapter of company building, pre-seed, seed stage, it's that zero to one. Almost all of those challenges are going to be people challenges. Not all. You have to find product market fit. There are so many components to, to that stage of business building, but so much of that is building early teams, 
uh, functional dynamics of those teams, compensation. So how do I com- fairly compensate? How do I build my cap table with those early employees around equity? How do I deal with remote and distributed work? So, oh my gosh, I found a great person, but they're based in such and such and I'm here. All of these things are the work that we are already doing. We're just doing it inside of one organization. And so it occurred to me as I was advising for a number of these companies and as I was developing my own portfolio, I was like, why don't more HR people uh, work in venture? And so then I went down a rabbit hole of investigating who are the people who have these backgrounds? Where are they sitting within the functional organization within venture capital? I started to educate myself on the industry, the areas of opacity, which by the way, there are many, uh, and that is by design. I have learned as I've gotten deeper into this field. Um, but what I what I discovered was the people who had the same skill sets as me were sitting in the back room. They are sitting in the back room and they are given the title of either HR, so internal HR, so they are leading HR for a venture capital firm, or they are called talent partner. And the work that that talent partner is given is almost exclusively recruiting. So a glorified executive recruiter. And I say that not because I want to speak ill of anyone with the um, talent partner title, but to, to actually speak very positively of them and say they are capable of doing so much more and having such a bigger impact, again, on the business outcomes. So it is a venture capitalist job, a a firm's role that the reason they exist is to create outsized returns. How do you create outsized returns in early stage investing? You're making, let's say you put 10 bets on the table, nine of those 10 bets will not likely graduate to the next step. So how do you increase that number from one to two, to maybe three? And then how do you help then those companies who graduate grow and continue to take on um, you know, additional growth in terms of um, business success? How we can do that is through the people's skill set. So giving them the tools. So oftentimes early stage companies, the founder is not going to come with a deep, deep people uh, management background, right? They're coming because they're good at being builders, whether that's product, engineering, whatever the case may be. Maybe they're a visionary with a great idea that came from the world of sales or marketing that exists too, but they typically are not having that depth of operational expertise around building companies from the ground up. HR folk, we are, we can do that. And so I was like, wait, why are these folks being relegated to the back room? So similar to from moving from film into tech saying, why is HR sitting in the back room? I'm asking the same question again. And, and what I've discovered is, is that there's not a good reason. It's because there was an archetype built by an industry around a very particular type of, of background, which happens to be finance. And, and maybe you're an ex-entrepreneur. Uh, but, you know, when you look at even applications at venture capital firms, Oftentimes there will be a drop down that says, what school did you go to? And it will say Stanford, MIT, uh, Harvard, Wharton, whatever the, the five are. I, this is how bad yeah. the game I am. Uh, <laughs> and then that's it. And I'm like, that's it. Yo, that's how no you're, other. That's how you're not, there's not an, there's not another. Well, I think what right? they would say, like, I think what, I think what they would say, Caitlin, is that there's, um, the skill of company picking takes time to learn and company picking is a lot different than company operating. And company picking is a lot of uh, pattern matching. It's a lot of understanding how history has worked, especially history in recent tech. 
And so I'd say that's one skill set that I that I have personally heard. The other one is the the Mark Andreessen quote, which I'll butcher, but it's something along the lines of like most of venture is negative selection, and the positive selection of venture, the companies you really want to take your money, they have to pick you. And so this is where like, you know, there's always this flight to quality and, and you guys are a part of this at 776 for sure. But it's always like the Sequoias and the Andreessen's and the 776s of the world that are thought of as these tier ones to where good founders actually come to you and want you to write the check. And so that's where I, I, I'm actually curious to get your take on this is how does an HR person crack in when that is what they're competing against? I, and before that, a point, Noah and I like to spar a little bit, you know, if you haven't realized, but the picking a lot of these, and Caitlin, I love your thoughts on this, is, is picking the founder, right? I've heard oodles of times, and I agree with it. You're not investing in usually the thing or the widget. You're investing in that human. You're investing in that founder, which now we're back to recruiting <laughs> and exactly what you talked about. Caitlin. So I'd love you to weave that in too, but I, I do believe that. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And I, and I, I think that I want to make it clear. I think that this is a yes. And this is a, you know, we just need more perspective at the table and different skill sets at the table. So this is not, again, this is, I, my intention is not to poo poo on anyone. There's a reason that the Andreessen's and Sequoia's um, have landed their places tier ones. Um, and there's also a reason they are growing the teams now in this new chapter, as we are, I think that we are about to, we are at the precipice. We are sitting on this edge of, of shift and change. It is a platform shift. It is a seminal moment in technology and, and the broader ecosystem, the broader economy, the, the global economy, right? In this moment in time. So, so we're talking, it's January, 2024. We are at the beginning of 2024. And the reality is, is, you know, we have, an incredible technology shift happening. Um, the the advancement and accessibility of AI is going to have a huge impact on how we work, where our money goes, how it develops. I mean, this is not a debate on is AI taking our jobs, I promise. Um, but that that is a huge platform shift. We are at a seminal moment with that alone. But now you add to that, we also have the complexity of what's going on here domestically in America. It's it's an election year. There are so many things. And if we look back at last year and the amount of you know black swan events that even just came out of nothingness and nowhere seemingly um, that changed and impacted the way we do business is changing us. And so venture capital has been undisrupted despite them investing in disruptive companies for you know the last several decades is no longer working. And, and so, Nolan, I love that you bring it up because what we are seeing in the more traditional venture capital firms is they are growing the part of their internal business that actually leans more on support than selection. And so the support teams, and you know, depending on, on what flavor and variety of, of firm you're going to look at and dissect, is oftentimes the platform team. They call it platform, where they are bringing in, you know, tools and, and support, you know, from operational, um, different operational parts of the business. So they, they have robust advisor programs. They had very robust, you know, entrepreneur and residence programs, things where people actually say, I, I know this and I, I built this myself. And so I can give you real actionable support. I have big beef to pick with how those are currently structured. And I don't actually think that they will translate well into this new chapter. But I do think that the reason, one of the reasons that, that we stand out in a, in a crowded market to say, please take our money, <laughs> um, 
is because we have built our reputation um, around being product and people first. And because we are, we have built ourselves uh, out of that traditional box of you must have gone to Stanford and studied X, Y, and Z and have a deep, you know, finance background. Our team just looks different when you look at our profiles and you look at how we've designed our, our, not only our team, but our processes. And so, you know, one thing that we built is, is called our growth and caregiving program, where we actually are carving out dollars for every investment we make into a pre-seed and seed stage company to actually support the human. And Kelly, to your point, the human who is building this, because Founders are, you know, they are strapped for cash, especially right now in this market. Everything is about reducing your burn rate. And so the last thing they're going to invest in is, heaven forbid, mental health. Heaven forbid, you know, taking that date night and having a babysitter. Um, you know, all of these things that make us different is, is I think, the new model. And I'm, I'm, I don't say that to, to toot my own horn or to pat ourselves on the back too aggressively. What you are seeing are more and more firms shifting the way they work and more firms emerging who are doing things differently. And because of that, that is how we're going to get more checkbooks, not, not backroom gigs for people who have deep, deep HR experience. This is how we're going to get the, the checkbook in those hands. And that is my goal. I really desperately think that our world would be a better place if we had more people who had depth of care and operational excellence and experience in building organizations who have had successful business outcomes in our industry. I really desperately think that this is what's needed and we're starting to see it happen. And it makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you're one. Jessica Neal at TCV is another one that immediately comes to mind. I was sitting next to her at dinner a few weeks ago and talking to her about her experience and she has checkbook power as well. Uh, I want to to quickly go back to what you had mentioned about the current operating model and you having a gripe with the, the current operating model, because I, I do as well. Um, right now, I think a lot of the tier ones have a very large staff of specialists all the way from HR, recruiting, sales, marketing, engineering, product design, and the list goes on. And some of these staffs are massive. But disruption in venture is actually happening, I think, a lot faster than people realize. Founders who are at the growth stage right now are telling me, like, nobody's writing growth stage checks anymore. Uh, there's only a handful of companies that are really like Series B and beyond, like getting these things done. And I, I find that that stage is really where the disruption is happening. And there's going to be a forced change onto these VC firms, specifically with how they're doing their operating model. What's your take and why do you have a gripe with the way things are currently run? we do not have enough time for me to get on this soapbox, <laughs> but I, I will try to summarize it uh, by, by saying I, one, I think that there is a ton of untapped talent that already exists in these folks, but they are siloed. Um, so I, I can, I literally, and I won't name them. Uh, there are several people I know who either have, you know, a platform title, a talent partner title, title, an operating partner title, whatever they're calling it that have so much more capacity and ability to help support companies, but they are siloed. So sometimes, and oftentimes, um, you have one partner leading a deal. They're the only one that has the relationship with that portfolio company. And so depending on what their background is, they're able to service and support in one small part of the whole. 
And so when they are like, oh, you're asking me for something that's outside of my area of expertise or something that I feel like I have real experience that I can support you with, I'm going to go to the back room. I'm going to knock on the door of the platform team or the operating partner team or the advisor team or the scout program team. And I'm going to say, hey, can anyone help so-and-so with such and such? And then you pass the baton. That person says, sure, I'll hop on a call. They got on a call. And guess what? They have zero context. Context is everything. So just, it, again, this is HR work. This is, this is the real, this is employee relations. This is where you are being the manager of this relationship. And to tag someone in and bail out the other side is not helpful for anyone. It's a waste of everyone's time. I have yet to see one that is collaborative. And this is something that that I, I do think I'm starting to see a shift in that I believe that Alexis was really a pioneer on, which was um, building our own operating system. And so we are a remote and distributed team. And he built us a software called Cerebro. And through Cerebro, it does so many things. And I, I won't get on that tangent either right now. But for this use case, one beautiful thing that Cerebro brings our firm is full transparency. So we believe in full transparency on all things, including how we support our portfolio companies. And so every partner at the firm, every individual at the firm, we have 11 folks today, every single person, anytime they have a touch point with a founder, it goes into Cerebro. And it, it reads actually like Reddit. So you're, you're, you can read a timeline on a company's history based on every single touch point. And so maybe Chris on my team had a workshop with one of my founders uh, where, you know, they, they pinged him and, you know, he also has an HR background. So I'm, I'm living what I say. Um, I really think there's a huge spot for this. So maybe Chris is running a workshop on, on compensation and design around, you know, fair pay equity with one of my founders. In that conversation, he might pick up a little nugget on like, there seems to be a little discord between those co-founders. And so he's putting this in his note because he's recognizing something, he's flagging it, but that's not the purpose of his conversation. He's there to talk about compensation. Now, me as the partner, I see this context and I can write and say, Chris, get in there. There is discord. I would love to get your take on it. Um, or maybe it's a passing fancy and I read it the next day because we're async and I get in there and I'm like, oh, I didn't know there was discord. I need to get in there. Having transparency and unsiloing relationships is critical. So that's one shift that I think we're going to see. Software enables that, but just generally context um, is helpful. And then the second part is there is a power dynamic to the way these relationships are set up. The partner has the power, right? So that everyone wants to adventure. Everyone's climbing the ladder to get to, I'm an investor. I have a checkbook. I have check writing autonomy and authority. Therefore, I am win and I am the best. That is wrong. <laughs> that is wrong. No one human uh, should not, not, I have to be very careful with my words here. I do not believe <laughs> that that is an effective way to, to operate, to achieve outsized returns. And so we at our firm, we do almost everything collaboratively. So we take our pitches all together. We support collaboratively. By doing it that way, we are able to not just better support our founders. And Nolan, to your point, we're entering a chapter where we're going to see a mass extinction of early stage companies because those checks are not on the other side right now. And that sounds very doom and gloomy, but I think that this is, it's a, but it's a call to action to the venture capitalists to step in and actually do their part, actually show up as the partner you promised. And keep the analogy going. I mean, one checkbook, one decision maker, it's the same thing as giving a hiring manager full autonomy to hire. Like, it's the same freaking thing, you know, just to keep it going. Exactly. Yes. I guess, Caitlin, the question for you, I'm just thinking of the audience here and what I'd want to know, right? You're, you're 
a master at all of this, your journey to get here has been long. Like it could be daunting for those on the call. Like, Ooh, I still, what, what are, what are one to two things that folks in the operating seat, maybe they're in the operating seat for a period of months or years before they think about this, what should they be doing now to like have the confidence and the ability to, to be that army you speak of and, and, and like replicate you, right? Cause there should be hundreds of us at some point. What can they do now to get, to get these skills? Best question ever. I love this because I actually have an answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this wasn't scripted. No, not at all. I, I, I can't <laughs> swear um, because I actually don't know that I've shared this anywhere. Um, awesome. And I've thought a lot about it, Kelly, because to your point, like this is what I want. I, this is what I believe our world needs right now. This, not just our industry, but like, I genuinely believe that, that we will have better products in the market if we have more variety of people in making that investment selection and then supporting those founders on their journey. I genuinely believe like, I don't know, I'm not going to say venture capital is curing cancer. In some cases, yes, if you were doing bio, <laughs> but like, but what I'm trying to say is like, I, I genuinely think that this is how we can push things forward from our seat in the house. My biggest piece of advice would be building your relationship with founders. And I say that, and it sounds opposite than like build relationship with investors or build relationships with venture capital firms. It's actually build your relationship and build your reputation with founders. So there is this unspoken like NPS score between founders that say that person was helpful, that person was not. And there is a meme amongst venture capitalists around asking the empty ask, excuse me, empty question of, excuse me. We, sw we swear here, empty, Caitlin. So, okay. Yeah. I, yes. I listened to the show, but I didn't want to be the one to break it. Just No, no we swear here. No earmuffs okay. needed. Just let her rip. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> There's nothing more frustrating than, than a VC showing up saying, uh, how can I be helpful? And then literally ghosting. And that is what occurs nine times out of 10. And so uh, the, the answer or the solution here is how can you be helpful? So if all of these people who do have the check writing authority, the power, the control in making these investment decisions, if they are only now good for a check, and that's a bold statement, but if that is your only purpose and that is your only value add, these founders are going other places to find the help and support they need. And so what I discovered early in my advising days and my angel investing days was that I was the only person in their orbit and on their cap table. And I can talk about how you get on cap tables without money, because I also think that that's a barrier that I want to remove for people, because oftentimes that venture has very intentionally put money as a blocker uh, for to get people into the industry. And so I have tools and techniques on how to do it. But there, there, there is a very clear path. If you have this skill set, you are auto value add to any founder. And so by, by looking into your own network and your relationships that you have around people who are out there actually doing the hard work of building a company, by being a source of value for them, genuinely and truly, I guarantee you, you will be the only one in their orbit. Let's start within their orbit, not just on their cap table and maybe not yet, but you will be the one that they come to time and time again. And when, when someone asks them, Dear so-and-so, who has been the most helpful? Is they, is they are ringing the bell on IPO day, or they just have, have sold their company for a few billion dollars. Think back to that first chapter. Who was the most helpful person? If it is your name because you coach them through how to break up with their co-founder or you help bring on their new COO who changed the name of the game at a milestone moment, that is your reputation. And that is your investor. That is absolutely your investor reputation and brand. And so 
Start with the founders. They talk. They talk a lot. It is a tree system (laughs) through the roots that is quiet, that we don't see and we don't hear. But if you can do that, eventually your name will start coming up in in boardrooms. It will eventually start coming up as they talk to their investing partners. They're like, you promised me things and you have given me zilch point shit. This person over here actually helped me when I needed it. And then they now the investor is going to say, who is that person? Why? And so that honestly was how I broke in, was by simply building my name and my reputation amongst the best founders in the world. Yep. I love it. I know no one has a follow-up. Yeah. Let me build off that really fast because like, as a founder, I can hyper-validate what you just said. I think the best advice I get is when it is uh, coming from somebody who has deep experience in the thing that I need advice on. And then the second best advice I get is, I don't know, but I know someone that does, and I can put you in contact with them. <clears throat> and I find that the worst advice I get is when someone is trying to give me advice on a topic that they actually don't know shit about. And instead of saying, I don't know, like, let me connect you to the right person. And that is actually even more helpful <laughs> uh, when I get it from like, hey, I don't know this answer because then I trust you more. Because if you're willing to tell me that you don't know something, but you know someone that does and you're willing to make that connection for me, that is how you be helpful to a founder on, and, and specifically on the cat table. And I want to just quickly and, you know, plus one on you for the um, dollars have been a barrier to entry. Um, nowadays with the AngelList RUV, you can invest in companies for as cheaply as like a thousand bucks. And I always tell other founders to do the RUV and to get as many high quality people as you can on the cap table because it is the highest amount of value per dollar. Because honestly, like those are the people who you can pick up and basically use as your own personal expert network to go solve problems as the company scales. So I'm, I, I think you just completely nailed it right there, Caitlin. And again, it's similar advice that I've heard that I give. I'm sure you, you all have. And it, what's successful people officers, operators are, they can work with founders. And most importantly, founders want to work with them, right? That brand follows you. And the the venture is you're literally working with maybe 40 founders now, not one or four. I feel like the venture world, Caitlin, I agree or disagree. It's good news for me. Like, you know, the last 15 years you mentioned plus or minus the people role has gotten very popular, very needed, much more respect, um, a table stakes, business operator, equal peer role. I feel like the vent, I feel like the venture world is kind of just starting that same path, meaning we're kind of fighting right now, uh, talent partner recruiting, I've gotten a, you know a couple calls from VCs and it's probably some sometime in my future but the, those those random ones that pop out well we get it I feel like 15 years from now I hope every VC has one of us to do that not just the recruiting side so I'd like to simplify things in my brain but I feel like that journey is the same one that we went through with freaking companies respecting people officers it's just in venture. Exactly. It, it is coming and I can feel it. I feel like the last few years, I think COVID really started to shift that investor founder relationship and therefore is challenging the current system um, and, and how things have been done historically. And I, I want to, I want to quickly go back to give one tactical piece of advice for people uh, going back to that money component of how do I become even an investor and build my, my own book. Um, 
I, I actually became an accidental investor. I didn't know that I was actually building an angel portfolio because the, the first five years of doing so, I wasn't spending a dime. I was an advisor. I was advising. I was getting, because friends would be building things, not even my direct friends, but Nolan, to your point, I was being introduced by someone who was being introduced by someone who was saying, Hey, I think that she might have a connection for you. She might be able to help you. And so in doing that, I got really lucky by meeting founders who were very generous to say, wow, every time we get a coffee, I leave feeling inspired. And I feel like I have great tactical things I can go employ today. And I would like to give you equity. And in the beginning, I was like, whatever, <laughs> fine, sure. And it was like, you know, 5,000 shares, 1,000 shares, like, 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 you know, little rinky dink things. And it was like, sure, fine. And then all of a sudden, I started to see those build and I started to see some liquidity. And this is coming from a, a poor kid who grew up with, with not very much. And suddenly I was going, wait, I put $0 in and I just got a check for $10,000 uh, for free. And then when I'm looking at it, I can go on my calendar and say, wow, I, in total, I had three hours worth of meetings with that person. That's a good use of my time. <laughs> and so, right. And, and not all of them are going to hit. I'm not promising that, but I'm saying if you can build those relationships and then, and then be in a position to where a founder is actually offering you money and what I've learned also now that I'm on the other side is a lot of venture partners actually discourage founders from giving equity to advisors. They do. Absolutely. So I found yep. it, it, mm-hmm. it because Makes oftentimes sense. they're, 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 they're <laughs> friends from their, their college days or experience be like, Oh, he was yeah. my frat brother. And then they aren't uh-huh. actually providing value. And then they're asking for yeah. equity. And there's this whole scheme that's going on that I'm not interested in. However, if you know that you have a good relationship with a founder or working within a a company that is not yours and you are spending your time and your energy with them, there is something. And I learned this from uh, Jack Altman, who is the former CEO of Lattice, the founder of Lattice. Um, He was one of the first founders to to gift me equity just simply for showing up and and answering his calls, whether it was for building the product or helping him internally. Um, And I will forever be grateful to him for that. But there is something called a fast agreement. So we've all heard of a safe agreement. You know, it's the fast YC way to do it. There is an advisor agreement that is equally as as like it's already been pressure tested. It's used a bazillion times, and so zero dollars, and you can have a, an agreement with a founder. It's they can go and run it with their lawyers. They'll get the green check instantly to say, "I would like to invite you onto my cap table." And so now you you don't have to deal with a single penny out. It, again, if you would like to, I agree. No, there's, there are so many awesome ways now to have much smaller dollar amounts in to, to build your portfolio, but you can also do it with existing relationships. And so that is the, the tactical advice I will leave the audience. But the biggest thing is delivering value first. Do you, you have to deliver value first though? Yes. Yes. You cannot. Yes. 100%. And people get this, people get this wrong all the time. Like, this is like the number one thing I see wrong with people who like want to advise is they show up being like, well, how much are you going to give me? And it's like, no, that is not the way that this relationship works. It is you give a ton of free value. And then the founder says, I would like to invite you as an advisor on my cap table. That's the only way that this thing works. And that's where founders I've seen get rubbed the wrong way is they get introduced to a quote unquote expert. And the expert shows up being like, well, you know, I'm 500 bucks an hour or I only, you know, work for uh, a quarter of a BIP. And every time the founder's like, no, thanks, I'll just pass. Um, versus the people who have these long lists of investments 
and advisorships, they almost never ask because they deliver so much value. It becomes almost impossible for the founder to pick up the phone and not feel terrible that they aren't compensating them in such a way. Exactly. And that's why I say your existing relationships, like where, so if you have a founder say like, I would love to, but I don't know how, or my VC, you know, my, my, my partner, my primary investor won't let me. And so that's, so I'm glad you clarified. I would never, ever. Totally. And correct me if I'm wrong, Nolan. I mean, you have to enjoy it. You have to literally be genuine about wanting to freaking help. I mean, I think I talked to at least two to three founder CEOs a month, just like for free. Like, I, I love it. You know, hey, they have a question. They're interested. They're hiring ahead of people. You make connections. You give back. Those relationships continue. I mean, some of those have gone on to be equity-based advisors. Other haven't. It's it's fine because it all works out. And founders can tell Right. I mean, I, we all get as humans, you can tell whether you're there for a certain agenda or you're kind of half in for, for a dollar versus this is what I love doing. I love building relationships. I want to help you. And that genuinely leads out. So that's always take the calls. It, it never hurts, you know, and, and, and give, give back. Totally. One of the most, um, reputable and well-known advisors that I know actually won't even take equity until she spent four to six hours with the founder because she's like, I actually want to assess that this works for me too. And that I want to work with you. And so even though it's, it's counterintuitive to give away your time for free, it's best for everybody involved. Exactly. But, and it, it's never for free. There's always a benefit. Yeah. There, there's always an intrinsic or a, like there's, there's always a benefit to that. So that's even better said. Yep. Okay. Caitlin, uh, we'd love to hear any like a top of your head, potent burning experiences, events, things in your past that have helped you tremendously as far as learnings, good, bad, or ugly that helped you get where you are. Oh, there are so many of those there. There's one story. This one comes up for me so often just as like a, a such a pivotal moment for me. Um, Ed Catmull, president of, of Pixar um, at the time when I had worked there, uh, when I when I very first started, uh, he and I had a conversation around my career and my development because I started at Pixar as an executive assistant. And that was a deviation from what I had done previously. And it was not necessarily what I wanted to do going forward, although I love that work. You know, it was a whole, it was a total hallway conversation. And he said to me, Caitlin, it takes us five years here to make a film. If you still don't know what you want to do when you grow up after five years, come and let me know because I will have failed you. Um, and I quit on almost exactly my five-year anniversary. And it was not because Ed had failed me. It was because he had given me so much. That organization had given me so much. And I wanted to take that and, and build on it in a new chapter of my career, in a new, in a new industry. And so that was a really pivotal moment. Um, and I think that that set the groundwork for me for the conversation that we had earlier around knowing when to leap. And so I left that company when I was the happiest, but because Ed had given me a, a, he time boxed it for me on accident. <laughs> um, and so I was very cognizant. And so as I took on different roles within the organization, I, I worked in so many different parts of the studio that when I got to the end, I was like, do I know what I want to do when I grow up? And the answer was no, but it wasn't because I was unhappy. It was because I was developing and I was growing and I wanted to go do that elsewhere. And so I think that he really set me up for that. Um, being just aware and being able to time box things for myself to make sure that I was listening to, uh, my needs as, and, you know, as a 
someone growing a career and not knowing what I wanted to do. And I say to this day, I still don't know what I want to do. I love what I'm doing and I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and I think that's a beautiful place to be. Um, so that's the one that comes top of mind. Love it. Thank you. Yeah. And I, uh, I feel the exact same way. Like everyone says like, Oh, it seems like you have it figured out. And I'm like, I have nothing figured out. And it turns out like the smartest people, when you talk to them, they're all like, yeah, I'm just on this crazy journey. That's called life. And I just follow where the, the path takes me. Perhaps that's the right answer. Caitlin, on that note, um, thank you so much for joining us. We've had an absolute blast learning from you and our audience is going to love this show. Thank you for the time. Ditto. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Oh, I'm so grateful for being invited on. Like I said, I'm a big fan of the show um, and a big fan of the audience. So it is my pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for having me. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.